You see, risk exists in life because many times the decisions and choices that we make, we don't understand how they're going to actually play out. We're not omniscient. And so we, we in faith, make decisions and choices as God directs us because with God there, there is no risk. And we entrust outcomes to Him. And so it's a, it's a privilege uh, for me to do that. Now, Saving Grace has been going through the book of Colossians, which speaks quite prominently about the supremacy, the preeminence of Christ, so that He will have and be first place in everything. First chapter, verse 18, tells us that. The folk at East Kilor have been in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark is about the suffering servant. To me, the key verse in Mark is in chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Radical statement from Jesus' mouth. I'm not here for you to serve me I'm here to serve you. I'm going to give my life for you. You see, I'm the vine. You're the branch. Apart from me, you can't do anything. And so this morning, I'm going to kind of wrap up where we were in the Gospel of Mark and just put that on hold until another day, another time because we're going to enjoy our studies with Vassam and you all in Colossians, so that in Christ we might see that preeminence. But tonight, or rather this morning, I want us to look at the ninth chapter. So take your copy of Scripture, be it in hard copy or digital form, and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 38 to 50. Um, but before we dive in, let's just um, let's ask God to direct us, shall we? Father, this morning, this book is closed. This sacred, ancient text is unknowable apart from your Holy Spirit. And so we just ask that you would illumine our minds and give us the understanding that we need in order to be able to hear what it is that you long to say to us. Your word is living, it's powerful, it's active, it can go places that we cannot. And it is so exacting, it's like the finest and sharpest of scalpels. Do that work in us today, we pray and cause us to be eager to receive this message with all readiness of mind. But Father, not to stop there, but to continue to, to search it out, to see whether the things this morning that I say are really, really true, thereby affirming it in our own hearts under the tutoring ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we're going to say thank you in advance for what we're confident you will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Somewhere along the way, many in the church have lost sight of the radical nature of following Christ. And they've kind of replaced it with a little bit of comfortableness. Today we come to a very unique portion of Scripture. It is full of graphic terminology, dramatic acts, severe warnings, and some rather violent threats. It's a passage about radical discipleship. And it calls for some pretty extreme behaviors that go hard against the ebb and flow of the culture in which you and I live. It reveals to us the prescribed path that Jesus has laid out to true greatness, which is radically different than what you might think. Because Jesus is calling every one of us to be radical disciples. Now, you've heard the word radical a few times mentioned this morning, so let's understand what that word means. If you look in a dictionary, you'll find two meanings for the word. Radical means the basic or fundamental nature of something. So radical is something that's foundational, it's primary, it's intrinsic, it is essential. But there's another meaning to the word radical. And that is... The word radical is something that deviates by its extreme. It calls for a thorough and a complete political or social change. Radical is very different in this second definition from what is traditional or ordinary. It is revolutionary. It is severe. It's, dare I say, fanatical, and in reality, both are what are needed. You see, it's a word that refers to something that is fundamental and fanatical. It's intrinsic yet intensive. It is essential and yet it's extreme. Therefore, I think it is a great adjective for the word and the life of a disciple. Just a few verses earlier in this same chapter, Jesus speaks of a radical paradox if you're going to follow him. He says, you lead by following. You want to be first? Be last. You want to live? Die. In order to get you must give. When you sow in tears, you will reap a harvest of joy. So Jesus, the first and greatest, makes himself the last and the lowest by submitting himself to serving and loving the lowest of the low, a child. And I have to ask myself, who are the lowly of our day? So Christians wield their influence by reflecting a radical attitude of love and a desire to serve and strengthen others. 
But this passage before us this morning highlights two more qualities. Well, a few actually, but I'm going to look at two. Radical humility and radical purity. We begin at verse 38 with radical humility. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he wasn't following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. This is interesting. A man, unlike the disciples earlier in verse 18 of this chapter, was actually able to cast out demons in Christ's name. But because he was not one of the band of the disciples, they tried to hinder him. It seems they felt that they were the only ones authorized. They were the only ones blessed to minister in Jesus' name. Now this attitude of exclusivity comes in many forms. Arrogance, pride, envy, selfishness, intolerance. And we see it often, sadly, in people who name the name of Christ. I came across this poem that reflects these feelings. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look and do as I do, then and only then I will fellowship with you. <laughs> Oswald Chambers, in his devotional book compiled by his wife upon his death, writes, there is a feigned passion for the souls of men that is nothing more than a desire to bring them to your point of view. And Jesus corrects this attitude. And he declares that no man can do a mighty work in his name and be his enemy. Just because the disciples had not heard of this man and knew nothing of his background or training was not grounds to disqualify him from ministering to others in the name of Jesus. The casting out of demons was done by God's power and that power was not limited to the twelve. Jesus makes the point that people can do miracles in His name only if they are in vital living relationship with Him. They cannot in one moment believe in Him and do a miracle in His name and in the next moment turn against Him and vilify Him. And so Jesus lays down this principle that He who is not against us is for us. And he opposed the disciples' proud attitude of exclusivity with a very open and, dare I say, generous spirit. So this is a text that calls for radical humility. 
It's a warning to us that we are not to alienate others or be quick to judge other people simply because they go to a different church or because they worship in a different way than we do. I've learned three new songs today. I loved it. I thought, man, this is awesome. And that's what heaven's going to be. An eternity of new songs, new music, new instruments, and we think of four-part harmonies. Why couldn't there be 20? Or 20,000? Why limit what it's going to be? If they glorify the name of Jesus and enter the battle against Satan and his demons, then there are brothers and sisters, and we need to recognize who the real enemy is. You see, our battle is not against liberal theologians or charismatics or Baptists or Presbyterians or Catholics, but against Satan principalities and powers in heavenly places. We are at war against the enemy himself for the very lives of people who do not yet know Jesus. And I think shame on us if we ever waste our time and energy battling on any other front. Now halfway into his discourse, Jesus turns the tables on the disciples and he tells them that they need now to examine the fruit of their own hearts. Because what is true for others is also true for them. They too will reap what they sow, whether for good or evil. And to help the disciples discern who it is that's for them and who it is that's against them, here's what Jesus does. He paints verbally with his tongue on a canvas that's magnificent a picture. In fact, two. And the first picture is that of a man. But let's read it. Verse 41. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. Now look at that first picture. There's a person who notices that the disciples are tired. They're thirsty from a long and hard journey. And they recognize that need. And they recognize these are followers of Jesus. And so he's willing to identify with them and with their master, and he gives them refreshment. And according to Jesus... Such a small act as this is evidence that this man is for us, okay? It's not the the expense involved or the size of the gift that matters. It's the motivation of the heart of the one who's giving. This man gives water because he wants to help and be involved in what God is doing. The second picture, though, look at that. It's painted for the disciples of a person who is against them and their ministry to the lowly. Instead of caring for a person in need, this person causes one who is easily influenced to stumble, to fall into sin. 
And this kind of person will not go unrewarded either. But that harsh judgment is meted out. A kind of death that would be better than causing one to fall into sin. Radical humility. Humility is a funny thing in a world of putting yourself up and out. You know, it's the, the, the minute you think you've got it, you've, you've lost it. And it's not, it's not thinking lowly of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself because you're caught up with someone else. But then he shifts gears and it gets really radically focused on an area of purity. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands and go to hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, there's a lot of repetition here because Jesus four times calls the fires of hell unquenchable or not quenched, which means basically that they don't go out. They never go out. The point of that is to say rather soberly and terribly that if you go there, there is absolutely no relief forever and ever. The final wrath of God is eternal, having no end. You see, the wrath of God is his settled anger against sin, expressed in the repayment of suitable vengeance on the guilty sinner. Boy, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a God who will mete out with exacting detail his wrath. Well, seeking to impress the seriousness of this matter indelibly upon the hearts of the disciples, Jesus is using some pretty startling metaphors here to show that enjoying life in the kingdom of God is worth the most costly of sacrifice. Now, I hasten to remind you that Jesus is not speaking literally here. Because even if we were to cut off a hand or a foot or pluck out an eye, we'd still have one left, wouldn't we? And these are not the source of our sin. Our body parts don't act independently of our will. It's our heart that is the center and the source of sin. Jesus isn't calling here for physical mutilation, but for spiritual surgery of the heart. He's telling us that we have to deal drastically with sin, which to the inner soul 
is what a cancerous tumor is to the physical body. If you have cancer in your body that is not checked, it will spread. And eventually, it will cause your death. Tuesday, I will farewell a friend of over 40 years. A man who adopted me and my young family when we first moved to Australia. He had a lot of physical problems, but it, probably seven, eight days ago, he was diagnosed with stage four plus pancreatic cancer, had metastasized and gone to the liver. And within four days of that diagnosis, he was really in bad condition. And then finally, the Lord called him home. You see, Jesus is saying that sin is like that. Whatever perverts our hearts, whatever leads us into sin, has to be addressed promptly and decisively, just as a surgeon would amputate a hand or a foot to save your life. And these images of the hand and the feet and the eye, all they are is encompassing the, the totality of your life. They help you think through your life and where you must deal decisively with sin. W with regard to your feet, where are the places or events or situations in which you find yourself that might lead you to sin? With regard to your hands, what are you engaging in? What, what activities and habits do you have both publicly and privately that might lead you into a path of disobedience against that which God has revealed to you? as being true and right, and a path of righteousness in which you should walk for his name's sake. How about your eyes? What are you reading? And what are you watching that may potentially lead you into temptation? You see, until we believe that life is war and that our very soul is at stake, we'll probably just play around. We'll probably just not be really committed as we ought to this matter of being a follower of Jesus Christ. There won't be any blood earnestness, no real vigilance, no real passion, no real wartime mindset. And if that's where you are this morning, maybe God has you here just to kind of hear this as a wake-up call, a reminder. Salvation is wondrously free, though it costs God dearly. But discipleship, that's going to cost you. That's going to involve an all-out declaration of war against these desires that wage against us. There's something about war that has a way of sharpening our senses. Uh, 
I'm told from friends who have battled in various wars that when you hear a twig snap or the rustling of a leaf, <laughs> you're just almost heightened to this sense of attack. Someone coughs and you're just about ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little sleep or no sleep, war has a way of keeping us vigilant. Because you see, Christianity is not a settle in and live at peace with this world the way it is kind of religion. It's a radical thing. See, sin is a monster of such ugly mean that to be hated, it needs only to be seen. But seen too oft familiar with face, we first endure, then pity, and then embrace. And so Jesus uses this extreme metaphor of cutting off our hand and tearing out our eye to remind us that even though mutilation imagery is a metaphor, it is not an exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. It's real. It's like a guy that worked in a factory in Geelong about 28 years ago. He got his his fingers caught between the rollers of this huge machine belting. And he knew that in about 90 seconds, he was going to be flattened into a bloody mess unless he got his hand out of there. And he took uh, an axe nearby and he cut off his own hand at the wrist. Eliminate from your life as much as possible anything that's going to cause you to stumble. And you can ask the Spirit of God who bears witness with yours. He knows the secret recesses, those little hidden folds, those little areas where no one else seemingly has a clue. But He does. And if you ask him, he will help you in those areas. If it's a place, maybe you won't go there. If it's an image, you'll turn away. If it's a song, you won't listen. If it's a book, you won't read it. If it's a liquid, you won't drink it. If it's a person, maybe you'll have to part company. The, the sacrifice may be uncomfortable, even painful, and it will probably un, be somewhat unpopular. But it's better to go throughout life lame than to be cast, to be cast off. So how does this truth work practically? Okay? Nothing becomes dynamic until it becomes specific. So here's what I want us to do. Look at Romans 8.13 for a sec. Okay? I want to take one promise of Paul to the Romans, and I want us to just apply that one promise in a practical way to what Jesus is saying here in this extended passage. Mark is talking about all this amputation and serious dealing with sin. Now look what Paul says in Romans 8.13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
So again, let's ask the question, how does this truth work practically? All right. Suppose you were tempted to lust. Now, don't always think about lust being in a sexual way, okay? Lust is just an extraordinarily take you outside the boundaries of God's prescribed way. It's an intense desire. So this lust may be for a death by chocolate mud cake when you know that's the last thing in the world that you need to have right now. It might be something of a physical nature. But suppose you're tempted to lust. Some image or thought comes into your mind and it calls you to pursue it. Now remember, the way temptation gets its power in your life and in mine is by persuading you to believe that you will be happier if you follow it. This is where sometimes the church misses it when it comes to fighting sin. We tell people the best way to battle sin is say, don't sin. Well, folks, um, my experience in 45 plus years of pastoral ministry, that ain't working. Because it doesn't matter what kind of church you're in, people are still sinning. And the reason people sin, because they don't do it because they have to. No one is duty-bound to commit sin. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make you happy. Sin is fun. It's pleasurable for a moment. Now, if you need a verse of Scripture for that, Hebrews 11.25 says, Moses, choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God, rather than enjoying the temporary pleasures of sin. So let's not forget, sin is pleasurable. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It won't last. It it lies. It, it, it dangles. It, it gives us a lying promise. It, it, it says, this is what you're going to enjoy, but it never happens. What do you do? Or what should you do? Well, Romans 8.13 is saying, in effect, if you kill it by the Spirit, you will live. Okay? By the Spirit? What does that mean? Well, out of all of the armor God gives us to fight Satan, the only peace, there's only one that is used for killing. And it's what? The sword. And it's called the sword of the Spirit. So when Paul says, kill sin by the Spirit, he means depend upon the Spirit and especially the sword. Now, what is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. And that's where faith comes in. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You see, the Word 
cuts through the fog and the lying promises that Satan makes, and it shows me where true and lasting happiness is to be found. The Word of God helps me stop trusting in the potential lying promise that sin wants to make that it can make me happy when it can't. It won't. Instead, the Word calls me to trust God and His promises. And so when faith has the upper hand in my heart and I am satisfied with Christ and His promise, then I'm on the road. Because Jesus said, He who believes in Me shall never thirst. You see, when my thirst for joy and meaning and passion are satisfied by the presence and promises of God in Christ, the power of sin is broken. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. So honoring God with our bodies must be the pursuit of every believer because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in us. And we have that from God. We're not our own. We're not independent, autonomous, indigenous, self-made People, we are people who are owned. We are people who were bought with a price. We are people who are committed to glorifying God in our bodies. Now look at verses 43 to 48 here of this chapter of Mark 9. And you see Jesus is setting two clear alternatives before the disciples. One is called life in verse 43 and verse 45. We see the word life. And then in verse 47, he changes. He doesn't say life. He says the kingdom of God. So that's one alternative. And the other is called hell or Gehenna. Okay? Gehenna. Where did that word come from? Well, the root word or the root of that word comes from the valley of Hinnon mentioned in Joshua 15. It's a, a steep ravine down to a valley that's south of the city of Jerusalem. It was the place where Ahaz and Manasseh, two kings, offered human sacrifices to Moloch. An unthinkable practice. Jewish people sacrificing their babies to Moloch. And it was denounced by the prophets, particularly Jeremiah, in fact, Jeremiah renamed it. He called it the Valley of Slaughter. And he also called it the Valley of Topeth. Topeth comes from a Hebrew word that means drum. Now, why would it be called a Valley of Drum? Because historians tell us that drums were beaten regularly to drown out the screams of burning babies. This was a horrendous place. 
And praise God, Josiah, a good king, stopped all of that and turned that place into Jerusalem's rubbish tip. So Gehenna was a valley located just outside of Jerusalem as its rubbish tip. Their refuse was burned and the bodies of executed criminals were discarded. Fires smoldered there continuously. Worms crawled through the garbage. It was repulsive, ugly, and a foul place. It came, it came to symbolize a place of eternal waste, a place of fate for all those who rebelled against God. And so this violent passage of images that Jesus weaves together, the cutting off of hands and feet and tearing out of eyes, as shocking as they are, this is exactly what Jesus has in mind. This is the most in-your-face, strongest challenge that I know of in Scripture on being a follower of Jesus. And he's saying that either you deal radically with the issues of sin in your life or you could end up in the eternal dump, the rubbish tip, punished forever. And I don't know about you, but that's pause for a little bit of sobriety. So Jesus is telling the disciples that the road to greatness not only involves loving the lowly, not only in examining and judging ourselves, it also involves submitting to some of the fiery trials that they're going to soon face for the purpose of being purified. Look at verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's tempting at times to compromise with the world. Sometimes it can be just hearing someone speak and what they're speaking is not true. What they're speaking is something that in reality, if you could turn and walk away, you probably should. But rather than speaking up, we just remain quiet. And a lot of times our quiet complicity is almost some sort of a nonverbal assent of agreement in their minds. See, compromise is not something radical like Peter being told that he's going to deny the Lord three times and it happens just as Jesus said. Sometimes those denials come in non-public little places in the privacy of our own heart, but the Spirit of God smites us and convicts us and brings to our awareness, why didn't you speak up for me? Why didn't you, why didn't you stand and hold ground? I've promised I'd be there for you. And see, when that happens, we lose our saltiness. 
Our effectiveness as agents of change in an increasingly crooked and perverse generation is diluted. But Jesus is telling, he's saying, guys, listen, fiery trials are going to be sprinkled throughout your life. And if you humbly submit to them before me, they're going to do a work in you. And they're going to burn off all the impurities in your heart. And they're going to reveal Jesus in some magnificent, magnificent ways. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it hasn't appeared yet what we're going to be. But we know that when he appears, that we're going to be like him because we are going to see him just as he is. And every one of us who has this hope in him fixes himself on him and purifies himself even as he is pure. Do you you hear what that's saying? The impulse for living a radically humble and pure life as a disciple of Jesus now comes from an intense hope and desire for what's going to happen when he comes. Sometimes you hear people say, well, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. What a crock. That's a lie. The more heavenly minded you are, the more you set your affections on the things above, the more your life is saturated with the person and work of Jesus, the more you marinate in the truth of God's word, the more flavor of our God will be pronounced in your life and it will become intensely attractive. Jesus drew sinners like flies are drawn to meat in a marketplace on a hot summer day. He was known as a friend of sinners. Boy, I'm glad of that, because I am one. And you is one. And he wants us to be like that in the world that he's placed us in. To be a learner and follower of Jesus is not for the faint of heart. You might say, I'm not really sure I can do this. Let me assure you, you can't. But he can. You can do all things through Christ, who promises, as Mark tells us, to serve you. He's given his life for you. Everything that you need for life and godliness is at your disposal. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It doesn't get any better than that. Father, this morning, we just want to tell you that we love you and that we desire more than anything else to be earnest, humble, pure followers of all that you are, all that you've called us to be, 
and all that you are preparing and equipping us for. So to that end, we, we looked to you, we lean on you, and we also much desire to learn from you. Father, I, I pray this morning that if there are in the unspoken little quiet recesses of our lives areas in which you would like to, to continue that refining, committing work that you have in, in making us more and more like your son, that today you would reveal yet again what is needed. Search us and try us and, and see. And if there be any wicked way, any sinful little seeming indulgence, anything that you know that is hindering us from reflecting the beauty and the fragrance of Jesus consistently in our lives. Oh, Father, we long for you to do what is needed to make that a reality today. So speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And by your enabling, Father, we will seek to respond in both faith and obedience. And we ask this in the name of the one who loved us and loosed us from our sins, the Lord Jesus himself. Amen.